Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about the challenge of interconnectedness and transparency, specifically around Kubernetes and cloud-native applications. And we have a fascinating discussion, sort of sparked by the idea of how exposed are we? What happens when something we don't know is connected is, is open, is, is exposed, is hackable? What happens when it closes and we didn't know? And we talked about how this is inherent in the architecture of cloud-native applications and what you can do about it. Um, fascinating discussion, really, really interesting. Um, that should get you thinking about how to architect not just your applications, but the platforms that you need to connect together to make them work. How you been doing? Um, not too bad. Been uh, working on more Kubernetes than I would like, but uh, I think that's everybody in the industry. <laughs> It is sort of it is sort of like a kudzu if you if you know the reference. Um, the uh, I actually have a theory that um, right now there's a lot of um, kudzu uh, kudzu Kubernetes. You know, kudzu and Kubernetes sound enough alike that it actually works. Um, Kubernetes permissive permissiveness, where people can be like, "Oh, I'll just throw in the Kubernetes and nobody will." govern it yeah it's uh honestly i'm 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 very scared mm-hmm. where the industry would be in five to ten years honestly not even that far ahead in terms of security there's huh. there's just too many things for us to keep track of like uh one of the things i've been uh always noodling on is the yeah. idea of being able to to visualize all of the the components in in these large systems that include literally like everything that includes like your AD servers and your network. And, mm-hmm. and it's always interesting to see that, of course, there are platforms that can have a large part of the picture, but in totality, it's a very small piece of the picture. So like one of the things I had worked through some years ago and it was kind of dusting off was a, a, a visualization graph of HashiCorp vault constructs. So being able to visualize who has access to like certain secret backends and things like that. And as I'm going through even just Ooh. that exercise for that platform, like it's mind boggling to think about all of the interconnections, let alone in a single small platform, relatively small platform like Vault. And then try to do that at a large scale, which makes me realize that it's, incredibly hard from a a human context standpoint to think that any one person could ever get close to being able to readily understand what's in or happening in a large enterprise environment. And you're very reliant upon everyone to be doing their job well in somewhat of an isolation because they don't have really good context in many cases to what others are doing in the broader organization. I I think that's a very real, real challenge, especially if those things are getting set up by hand. Well, uh, yes and no. I, I think automation exacerbates that problem hmm. because now instead of you being able to to stand up four or five of a thing, <laughs> now you're standing up thousands of a thing 
that you have no clue of the full context. And now it just means so. I mean, you take cloud accounts, for example, <laughs> like while the, the paradigm is now for an AWS, like AWS organizations with multiple accounts, you're talking thousands of AWS accounts. Like it's hard enough to wrap your head around everything that's going on in a single AWS account, let alone thousands. Right. No, that's, I, that's a good point. And we've made it, we've made it easier, like with the, you know, it's so easy and and, and low cost to create a cluster, a Kubernetes cluster. It's just like throw more clusters at it. Uh, but yeah, can Vault tell you that you've got a hundred subscribers to that Vault? I haven't, I haven't played with it enough to know. It can show you who's hitting the, the cluster and some relative information from an, an audit logging standpoint, but trying to, so like the, I think the exercise started out of people always talk about least privilege, least privilege. And oftentimes the people I hear talking about it, I always question, have you actually really configured least privilege on a, a fairly large system or like any of the cloud providers? to constantly be preaching least privilege as the answer to our security woes. Because in most cases, trying to configure least privilege is unbelievably hard. Um, like let alone, so the, the, I think my first foray into trying to figure least privilege with a fairly complex system was vSphere. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I, I don't know whether I would agree that that it is hard in terms of mental uh, bandwidth, but it's definitely tedious. Tedious, yeah. So the, the, the defaults are, are, are not sane. Yeah, and I think the thing for me is oftentimes the, the tedious nature just ends up simply resulting in, depending on what you're doing, you can end up burning a couple of days just trying to, to figure out what it might be. And of course, while I standardization in that case would be incredibly hard, but in most cases, the same constructs don't necessarily translate from system to system in terms of permissions and privileges. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. What's really hard, like if you try to do it the right way is justifying to those who are paying you. Like why, why are you spending so much time Dealing with the pressures, well, because I'm trying to do it the right way. Yeah, why, why did you spend a week trying to give somebody access to something? Just, just hit the button, right? Uh, right. And, and I think that's why um, we've seen a, uh, growth in systems that provide temporary access because um, we're finding it difficult to, to ensure that the access we provide is the, the least privileged. So we, we right. then err on, on the side of, well, let's, let's grant a little bit more privileges so we don't have to go back and forth, uh, but then let's terminate it as soon as it's no longer necessary, which is, I mean, it it's, um, Acceptable mitigation. It, it, it's not ideal, but it's certainly better than the alternative. But 
I mean, we started this class before you came in about the visualization side of this, which is actually not just knowing that you've done these things. Hmm. It's, and it's, it's actually interesting on both sides, because I think that there's a challenge on the, the permissiveness of having all these links open that you're not aware of. And I think there's uh, issues on the other side of somebody coming back through auditing and cutting things down that um, break you know, something two or three items removed. All right, there, those are both factors. I, I don't know what to do about it. It's, we're, we're increasingly connected and interdependent. It's just like fire, old firewall rules. You never take away a firewall rule because you don't know what you're going to break. Yeah, I think for me, it's, I think it's a very interesting topic the thing I often struggle with, is there a, even a market for it in the sense of how many would be willing to, to pay for that capability in and of itself? And it's it almost goes back to the the whole, I think the the meme that's going around in terms of do you do you pay what five hundred dollars or what for whatever for fifty thousand for a pin test, or do you pay the five hundred thousand for the 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 ransom? To the the, the, the oh god ransomware <laughs> and it's it always comes back to the case of you can't definitively say you know the pin test is going to prevent you from getting ransomware so are you are you willing or inclined to to pay for something that's not a hundred percent assurance yeah to to be fair ninety percent of the time where when companies ask for a pen test they, they don't really want a pen test. Yeah, they want a security assessment. Checking the box in some cases. Does it, when you say that, I, I agree with the sentiment, but does that mean that they're not actually looking to make changes based on what the pen test? Like they're just like, oh, I want to pass it. They're they're not they're they're not approaching it as an a product and a product improvement process or. Uh, it, it varies. Sometimes they they do look at it as a as an improvement. Um, capacity but they're too early in the stage to to warrant a pen test like a, 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 when you want a pen test that is when you already have your security security systems in place you're fairly confident in them and you want and and you you did all of the check marks and now you want to see how it stands up most of the time when a company asks for a pen test is we don't know what's going on here. Let's do a pen test, and and, and that's that's not the right time to do it. But yeah, uh, go, going back to the to, to topic, it's um, in in terms of whether there is a market or 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 not. I have a sneaking suspicion that the time where those kind of services are, are, are most in demand is when the breach already happened. And then the expenses pivot towards, oh, let, 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 let's, let's stop this from, from happening again, which is really more of a, let me cover my ass by pretending I'm, I'm going to, I care about stopping this from happening again, but then 
two years down the road, they're going to forget about it again and start cutting <laughs> corners. So <laughs> that's the challenge of pen tests. It's it's it truly is a rolling target, and it's incredibly configuration dependent too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, with with that in mind, is I I would say that the the market exists, but it's highly variable, and and it depends more on the on what the red teams are doing than on what the blue teams are doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think mine was the the challenge of just starting to think through all of the the interconnected system aspects of just even visualizing even something as seemingly simple as I've got a a group, right, a user in a group in a HashiCorp Vault or whatever system that connects into Active Directory, and there are groups in Active Directory. How do I visualize that mapping of access user A? has access to the system. How do they have access to the system? And then ultimately what permissions in the system do they have access to within that system context is it's trying to trying to map out those things and those things become just really complex, even on seemingly basic scenarios of two systems interconnecting, let alone across a thousand systems in a, an enterprise environment. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... It's easy to put for for IAM or, or even just generic RBAC systems to to look like or at least the interconnections to 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 look like a dog's breakfast. And I I mean ultimately my opinion is that when you're dealing with something like that, you need a tool like Elasticsearch on, on, on Kibana. Huh. Not 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 necessarily because of its querying capabilities, but because of its visualization capabilities and, 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 and the fact that you can apply filters and, and drill down and then move filters and, and expand into different area. Um, if you don't, like it, it, it needs to be interactive enough. And, and, and again, my experience, um, out of the box, Elasticsearch and, and Kibana does give you that, but there, there's a quite a high cost on top of it. Yeah, I know one of the, the ones I had mm. kicked the tires on was uh, Neo4j during some of their graph visualization and representing relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, I, a lot of those are, are actually built into Kibana. Yeah, and that's I started looking at Kibana after I saw, looking for, for different solutions because I also wanted to start overlaying some actual audit data into the the relationships yeah and, and that's when when you go into into observability and, and as well as scene uh territory and again like the the nice thing about the last assertion in Kibana is that it has facilities for all that integration uh in many cases it doesn't come out of the box unless you use their <laughs> tool specifically which is that the hard part like getting the data into one place is is is, is the hardest part. It's hard, but then you also have to have queries that match up to it. I mean, the the topic for the day is about events and, and orchestration. And what to me, some of what you're describing is actually having systems that emit, you know, these types of events, so you can track down what went on with it. Mm -hmm. Um. 
right? There's two sides. There's two sides to it. One is the side that says, "Hey, I, I want every service I have to tell me who the subscribers are, you know, what's what's going on, and and what these events are happening." And then there's also the side of saying, "I'm going to send." event information, relevant event information to an aggregator so I can do the queries. Um, but then you still, you first you need to build the bridge and then you need to build the queries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you need to have your your data already enriched with, with your tracing information so that you can correlate it. Which is, which is one of the, the, the nice things about frameworks like open telemetry and open tracing is that it gives you the guideline on, on, on how to, how you should emit your data in the first place. And, uh, and then you build on it. And the, the hard part, of course, is instrumenting all of your, your tools to, to emit that data in the first place. Well, I... One of the things that concerns me is that the tools don't, don't actually necessarily emit that that flow, um, right? That's the nice thing about um, you know Kubernetes potentially becoming more of a standard. Is at least you you're, you're getting some standard drop-ins that could say, all right, I'm gonna you know I know how to flow this information out of Kubernetes, maybe. Um, you know, like in many cases, like even Kubernetes. Or, or applications that you deliver into Kubernetes don't, don't give you that. But what Kubernetes does give you is a framework for uh, wrapping, I guess you could call it sensors around your, your application so that you can approximate. For example, like if you, if you run service, a service mesh, it, it will automatically give you traces about the traffic that goes from between your pods or, or even the ingress and egress. Uh, and that, that gives you the trace information. Now, the, the thing is, like, of course, you, you, you lose part of the, the traces if, you're, if your application doesn't consume it and unforward it. And, and that is something that's ultimately up to developers, unfortunately, uh, and, or at least at least for now, it is up to the developers. Uh, there, ha- there has been, however, um, some uh, some inroads being made into um, into basically library-less and agent-less uh, observability uh, using uh, eBPF. Um, so. I think over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot more frameworks taking advantage of that um, and then being able to, to dig into the, the guts of an application without having to modify it. Hmm. I... Is that the, do you think, is that the trend line, right? I mean, or, or it does strike me that we're building more and more of these tools to uh, lay overlay observability and controls, but, and then not requiring, not expecting the, the app developers to worry about it. Um, okay, let, let me clarify. Like, I, I yeah. don't think it's so much that not have, 
about not having developers to worry about it. It's okay. about having the capability of observing the behavior of a workload without modifying it. So if you if you're giving a, a third party workload and, and and you want to see like well what I need I need to do auditability uh, audit of the internal process without modifying it. EPPF to some degree lets you do that. Mm-hmm. And and that's the beauty of it. Like it and and it's particularly useful again in, in, in restricted environments as well. Even Kubernetes. For example, uh Falco, the, the audit framework for, for, for Kubernetes. You can install it in, in one of two ways. You can either use eBPF, in which case it does need to run in privileged mode. Um, or you can um or you can install the kernel modules. Now the kernel modules are, are not available on, on, on every platform. So, so eBPF does give you full observability without having to to load any new modules, and, and and that's that's beautiful. That was actually one of the things that I was expecting as we did more and more containerization, because containers can be inspected, right? So it it makes sense to me that we should start seeing more and more. Um, not exactly sidecars, but adjacent, uh, you know, service container adjacent analytics, and you know, we have first proxies and uh, analysis tools and scanning tools, right? All that, all that stuff should be a natural, like, because I, I don't think we can count on, maybe we don't even want to count on the developers in putting things in the in the containers to to do all that. Mm-hmm. Makes me nervous too because we started this conversation on security, and so um, a credential, a credential injection, I guess orchestrated by Kubernetes, at least is orchestrated by Kubernetes instead of um, built into the app. But then you somewhat have some some potential pushback on the the flip side, where you're saying all of this starts to feel a lot like magic. With the the sidecars and and you not having a, a great understanding necessarily of a, how things are operating under the cover, so to speak. Not that we ever have, because of course that could always go all the way down as far as the uh, the the lower level components and libraries and things like that. As far as you want to go, um, but uh, yeah. I, I think there's certainly that trade off. And, and I think from a commercial standpoint, as far as instrumentation, one of the 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 big challenges oftentimes with that is the how fast can I provide time to value for a customer if I'm positioning something so if I can avoid them having to actually instrument or change the application then that's a win for me assuming that you know that you can then add it after the fact right I mean this is all contingent on and this your your comments made me think of cloud foundry because that was cloud foundry was a right all batteries included sort of platform where it was like hey developers just wor- worry about the app the business logic and the web handling and the cloud foundry pieces are going to do all the all the frameworky stuff for you and kubernetes i think wins because it doesn't it's not as constrained an environment in order to provide this those uh, guardrails 
But it's also the big problem with Kubernetes. And, and that yeah. you get so many choices that it, it, it's daunting to newcomers. Which is why we're headed back towards more of that cloud foundry model with uh, the, the commercial offerings of don't worry about any of this stuff. Just bring your code and we'll run it. Yeah. Like, like the... Um, uh, like uh, Google now has two Kubernetes platforms. One is like the the regular GKE, and, and the other one is um, I forgot what it's called. But it's basically you you they 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 make it a requirement that that your application needs to have its resource requests. It, it needs to have its it, uh, its resource limits, and then it just runs on on their nodes, and and they take care of, of managing the nodes for you. Um, yeah, I wish I remember what it was called. But yeah, but yeah, yeah it, the default flavor with like a bunch of the autopilot stuff for the nose and those pieces. Yeah, yeah actually, autopilot. That, that's what what it's called. Um, so, so, so it it removes the it, it removes uh some agency from, from from the developers in that you can not, no longer control your, your, your node pools. You, you have certain restrictions, but it simplifies the, the, the development. It, it's basically almost bridging uh, serverless and, and Kubernetes workloads. Ooh. Okay, serverless has another layer to this. Well, it's the interesting part of where it's it, it all starting to, they're mashing everything up because, I mean, even with the, the GKE autopilot, it feels a lot like what uh, ECS was and Azure when they, before they killed off with their ACI or and then brought it back again as Azure like container apps or whatever. All Azure started as a PaaS. I mean, that was the right. They, they originally were were very restricted. Of it. They didn't even have uh, VMs in their first in their in their first offerings. Um, speaking, you know, but uh, it's the, I, the shifting I mean, cycles of what people want. I mean, you, you got people where they're like, you know what? I don't want to have to worry about any of that stuff. And it's always challenging from a product standpoint. Like, I don't have to worry, want to have to worry about anything. And then they get like three months down the road where it's like, you know what? I really need to be able to customize this. <laughs> and it's like, you, you just told me you didn't want to have to worry about any of the things. And yep, that's that's the danger, right? Right in on that. Hmm. And I mean, it's just like with uh, with the like running stuff remotely versus bring it bringing it to your local nodes. It, it it goes back and forth. Like with with the with where you run your workload, it is typically a matter of well, do we have enough power to run it locally? Not if not, okay, we'll just push it to the cloud, and, and then system gets more powerful and it's brought back. With 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 the with the SaaS offerings, uh, I I think it's more of a well let let's add features because customers want it and it gets built up. But and at some point it, it is like well this is too complex. Let's 
provide a platform that gives 90% of, of, of the features that, that, that users want, or, or has just enough features for 90% of, uh, of the users, and, and then it gets simplified. And then features get, get added back onto that, and, and then it goes back and forth. Um, we, we see the same with, with databases, like uh, Redis, when, when it first started. Like it's, what, what developers wanted was something fast, no, no features, just like key value, add, add and remove. <laughs> well, the, and, and then over the years, now people wanted more features built on top of Redis, so they added that. Um, um, yeah, for it on the line. Uh, once, the, once you get once you get something that works, the logical thing to do is continue to expand its its footprint. I mean, I, that, that's how I feel about the um, CRD pattern with Kubernetes, mm -hmm. right? CRD the CRD pattern in Kubernetes is itself a, a completely um, uh, not a completely different, but it's a, it's a emerging use case pattern on top of Kubernetes that was not the design pattern for Kubernetes. <laughs> on the other hand, yeah, uh, I, I am glad that we went to the CRD pattern way as opposed to tacking things on top of the, the Kubernetes API itself. It, it was a conscious decision by, by the Kubernetes developers and say like, we're not going to add these features to Kubernetes. But here's a framework where you can implement your your features with your own controls. Right. I yeah. I, I guess my and maybe I, it doesn't need didn't need you know my 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 thought on it is it should have been it's a separate project product something like like then then it would have governance and things like that for that pattern. But as I'm as I'm watching people's uh, you know stuff a whole bunch of things into CRDs. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the good news is that the, the specs for CRDs have gotten stricter over time. Okay. So a lot of the ugly things that CRDs used to be able to do uh, years ago, uh, well, or, or, or even last year even, um, with the newer versions of Kubernetes, they just they're not allowed because again, like you, you can't have I think like uh, unbound types and, and things like that anymore. Mm, okay, it's an interesting. But all right, but re rewinding all the way back to the beginning, right? We have Kubernetes; it's shown up. People can go add things to it. Do we have a visibility challenge in the, in the middle of all this? Well, right. I mean, our, our, and I, I haven't seen it, and I don't track Kubernetes as closely. I, I can say I don't see this in general in the industry that the lack of visualization of consumed resources is pretty low, um, and really, really, really hard. Right. Most uh, rewinding all the way back, most applications don't tell you who's consuming them. Um, requires discipline to either create distinct user accounts or manage when you when you provide access. Um, I I would break this uh, question down into into two answers. One is okay. yes, we are having a visualization problem, and 
the second part is that visualization problem uh, was always there and it's going to continue being there with or without coordinates. It, 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 Fair it, enough, it's, right? That's right. The, the visualization problem is not, it's not a fault of coordinates. It, it's, it's been endemic um, in the industry. Uh, I think, however, that Kubernetes, because of its behaviors and, and because it's it's made other things much more uh, apparent, has put a spotlight on it. Oh, can you expand on that? What do you mean? Well, for example, um, let, let, let's go a couple of years back when, when we would when we were running everything in, in, in VMs, containers didn't exist yet. And, and we're, we're talking what, like 20, like 10 years ago, more or less. Um, we would- yeah, pre-containers. Yeah. We, we would see, we would have VMs that would have bundles of applications packed into them. So that they, we, that there was no, there was not yet the, the pattern of one VM, one application. And, and even if it was just one application, you, you, we, we would always like add agents and, and, and whatnot, mm -hmm. just, just for management, not, not as like typically not observability at that point yet. Uh, right. Yeah, no, small lightweight VMs were very uh, hard to pull off. Yeah, and, and uh, it, it was fair then also, like, because there was an overhead with, with running VMs as well. Sure. Um, this is, it's interesting because what you're, part of what um, the containers absolutely crushed out of existence, it feels like, was, um, oh, there was a word for this, that people were building uh, little bespoke VMs that had their, like a stripped down kernel, microkernels was the, Right, but you're describing the pattern that we saw competing with containers at the moment, ten years ago, was microkernels, where we were building specialized VMs um, that only did one thing, and and you know stripped out OS, and and you were building highly highly specialized, and you'd rebuild the whole microkernel for that purpose, and it would be a VM that you would run in that in that mode. But those are back. They never die. They never. Yeah. They never die. Like technically, flat card and and, and like Corus, those are same concept. Um, yeah. Even even like the Linux, I, I believe even the Linux um, subsystem for Windows is functionally a micro a micro kernel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, and the anyway, environment go, on Mac. Yeah, go, going back on the conversation is so. We, we we had these VMs, which were 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 packed with all of the features that we wanted to do, like in order to just go up and and do things. And again, it it, it was a bit of a black box. Like we 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 knew that the VM itself was consuming resources, but if we wanted to see what's what's happening inside the VM, we had to monitor it, and and we, and we monitored it as if it was another separate discrete system because that's how we treated it. Uh, now, and then containerization happened. And the interesting thing on that is that because containers depend on the host VM, on host kernel, and, 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 and they're, they're 
a much more virtual uh, delineation of the workload. And, yeah, and because containers had, as we run them now, uh, are have an, an orthogonal philosophy to VMs. Like it, it's not, it's no longer like try to cram as much as you can into one container. It is now you 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 separate each workload that you want to run into a separate container, and then you and then you click them together. Uh, so so a with the config itself, you start getting observability in, in saying like. I know that container A is communicating with container B because I configured it to, to do that. Um, and then layer on top of that, you, you got um, service mesh and, and, and service discovery, uh, where right. now you say, okay, I know this container wants to talk to this other type of container. So, so you now have a single source of truth that says these are the, the the containers of this type available, which you can observe as well. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's right. So the way I see it, the, the evolution in observability uh, came not because people wanted to see things, but it's because people. <laughs> didn't want to spend the time configuring things i i that's interesting my my boy you said a ton of interesting stuff <laughs> um some of what you're describing to me 10 years ago we were just we were talking about as east-west firewalls mm -hmm. where we were building um east-west firewalls inside of vms to do the traffic routing that we're now calling service mesh um, but you had to do it so you didn't have the coordinating fabric of Kubernetes. So you couldn't say, oh, all of the containers you spun up of this type need to have uh, traffic routing between them. We were, we were having to do this as like a whole bunch of mini firewalls, which is, is still reverse yeah. proxy. So or, or, the thing or that, with VLANs and proxies. Yeah. Well, we had, proxies. we had we had NSX for those that are willing to pay for NSX and implement NSX. That's true, that's true. Mm -hmm. But never the programmability that service mesh laid in because of the, because inherently Kubernetes gives you the, you know, the list. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the big, one of the big differences with Kubernetes is that you can spin something up and then you can ask the API to say, uh, where did you put this stuff? Because <laughs> yeah. you don't know, you have to, you have to ask in VMs. We always started sort of with the conceit of, Oh, you, you built it, you know where it is. So you can dictate all the building then you then you don't have to query it with Kubernetes. Since you we gave up that authority, you have to ask for it. I mean, that's in some ways the the major thing in Kubernetes was um, this: you're deli you're you're giving up the the ability to set where things are unless you're using Kubernetes incorrectly. Um, you're you're giving up the ability to say where things are, so you're forced to ask where it put things, and then keep up with where it put things. Um, and that in itself is a major paradigm shift for building systems. Mm. Well, so I think I, part of that's like the, the shift to the cloud is people were, you're willing to give up control because it's already built in. Because the, the answer would be is, well, DNS already did that from a, a technical standpoint. Mm. 
except for the the auto registration in many cases. And it was a case of if the industry could have said, you know what, this is what we're using for, for DNS or IP address management as a broader solution, and this is your only option, and this is what it has to be, I think the industry could have gotten to that same place with VMs, but it's just the the industry wasn't willing to accept that. Well, I mean, te- technically we did have it with VMs. It's called console. Like HashiCorp <laughs> console gave us that. It, it gave us the, the service mesh with VMs before Kubernetes existed. What, what, what we still had, however, was that we needed to manually handle the placement of VMs on, on the hardware. So, yes, it, it made things easier in, in that if one of my hypervisors went down, I, I could, my, assuming that I, ha, I, I, I was smart enough to, to use like a, a, a detached storage, like I, I, could, I could move my VM to, to another hypervisor, bring it back up, uh, and it would register itself and, and, and nobody would be the wiser. Um, and all that discovery, that discoverability initially was implemented with DNS. So, so it, it was backwards compatible as well. Um, but, mm. but yeah, it, it was still, you, you were still doing VMs. You still needed to run the console agent on all your VMs. So it was a great step in the, in the right direction. And it, like I, I used it for 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 a long time, uh, but what Kubernetes added on on top of that was the ability to no longer need the agents bundled with with, with each application. I I didn't need to to configure my Kubernetes agent for my database specifically for my front end server specifically. I, I, I just needed to deploy my front end with, with the right spec to say this is a front end. I need to deploy my database with, with the right spec saying like this is my this these these this is my database selector. And then you have a service in front of it that uses that selector. So it I see coordinates uh, as an as an evolutionary change from that. Uh, I don't see it as a revolutionary because I myself have, have seen all the technology all over the place already. Uh, but it it took it all and it and it packaged it up nicely in, in a way that uh, was e- more easily explainable than all of the individual components uh, themselves had had it been done on VMs. Yeah, and I think it, it it benefits from the the single platform as opposed to let's say I combine a HashiCorp console plus a puppet, a chef, or an Ansible to start to declaratively describe what that configuration looks like, plus a little bit of this, plus a little bit of that. And then at that point, you start getting into the different vendors who are, are always going to have contention on either what they're going to focus on or what they're going to support. Yeah. Plus your SAN or, or NAS or, or, or NFS or, or, or whatever, plus your, your, your hypervisor. Like, all, again, when people talk about Kubernetes being complex, like, yes, it, it, it is complex. 
but it is so much easier than, than all of those individual pieces put together. Well, I, I've always been of the opinion, right? There's there's a a utility in complexity where two right Kubernetes at the moment, and one of the things that benefited it was it wasn't the obvious first choice at the time when it was introduced, right? We had Mesosphere, which was much more mature, much more complex. Um, and we also had Docker Swarm. We had Aptira or Prenda, or right? we had a fair number of, um, and, and, and Cloud Foundry. Speaking of, um, in in the mix of, of things doing very similar work at the moment, and that, that's why you know the, putting the guardrails back into Kubernetes is great. Users want that, um, but having a system behind it that is still open enough that you can, um, you know, sort of force it to your will is is important. I mean, that's that's the balance. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure where we're. I uh, there's a huge but coming, which is I, I keep circling back to where we started, which is if it. But if it's too open, it becomes impossible for us to do what Martez was talking about, which is say, are are you compromising my security without me knowing about it? Yeah, yeah, and uh, ultimately that that's also the the, the center of Kubernetes and that. It, it it is open, but it it the it being open does not mean that it does not have barriers. It it, it has it has a very clear initial barrier where, where it says like if you do things this way, you're gonna have a good time. <laughs> but then right. it says you could do it differently, but you have to actively make a choice to do it differently. And, and and when you make that choice, you need to essentially like like the digital like the, the the digital equivalent of, of, of clicking on 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 an end user license agreement, saying like, yes, I understand that that I'm that I'm going into developer mode here, and I could break things. So so it it makes that boundary very visible. Uh, and that I think is one of the, the key differences between Kubernetes and, and other platforms, which which would have been or have been uh, equally open. And that many times it, the, those platforms say like, "Yeah, you could do anything here. Uh, good luck if you break it." I think my bigger concern from a, a security standpoint is in many situations, Kubernetes becomes an, an, another abstraction on top of a lot of things that we already have. And if I even take something like uh, network security as an example, works really great from a, my workloads are in Kubernetes and I want to define things like network policies and or even use service mesh to help some of that manage that capability. But the moment I start to have to think about how do I bridge non-Kubernetes workloads and Kubernetes workloads together, the complexity just instantly ratches up. Either I can bring everything into my service mesh if my operating systems that are non-Kubernetes support something like Envoy Proxy to actually run on it. Uh, but if I can't, then I have to, to start making designs where it's Kubernetes workloads 
and non-Kubernetes workloads, those are segmented, then have to address things like the fact that the, the pods are having netted addresses as that traffic comes out of the Kubernetes cluster. So not everything looks like it's coming from a single endpoint or single endpoints, and then potentially start to get complex in terms of things like IP addresses that a workload is utilizing to access external services. And I think that just becomes too much for most people that are going to run Kubernetes. Does that get better when more and more tools just give up and build Kubernetes integrations? Is that, is, I mean, because uh, I, I, I don't, it doesn't feel to me like if I wrote a Kubernetes integration, it would then work on the major, you know, like it wouldn't necessarily play nicely with the major clouds, but I haven't studied this. Like I can see, yeah, I can run a Kubernetes app, but what you just described mm -hmm. requires a level of Kubernetes integration that it doesn't feel like is a priority to me. Maybe maybe there are some a whole bunch of projects where we would add it into um, thinking like the Giphy security stuff, which I tracked years ago, but I haven't. I just saw they just got through an incubation stage. So I know Cal Calico is doing a lot of work in terms of bridging that gap from a, just a pure network security standpoint. The service meshes are headed down that path, like HashiCorp Console mm. has supported VMs for quite some time. The issue I just literally ran into is that it doesn't support a bunch of operating systems because it relies on Envoy, which doesn't support a, a I'll say, I won't say a, a, doesn't support a lot, but it doesn't support a lot of the older operating systems. Okay. Which you, you get into that whole legacy problem of that. Well, that's what my workloads are running on and I can't easily migrate. And so mine is constantly trying to figure out, are we just going to be at a point where it's Kubernetes and non-Kubernetes and the, the divide between the two just grows exponentially? Um, I, I don't think so, largely because again, like whether, whether one site runs Kubernetes or, or not, uh, joining traffic between two distinct networks is going to be the same problem, right? That, like, on, unless we are, we allow direct connection, like, uh, peering between the two networks. Mm -hmm. All the traffic is going to be go going through a gateway or a proxy. Uh, at which point, yes, you you it, it it will look like everything is coming from 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 one source. Um. So, which is a problem for observability, right? Yeah. So, so then you you take it back and, and say like, okay, like I know everything is going to look like coming from one source at least at the layer two, layer three level, mm. how can I enrich it with sufficient information? And, and, and that's where things like MTLS come, come into place, where, where it's like, okay, this is the client server. It cannot be spoofed. So so it, this, this particular traffic comes from this client. So you, you add it artificially back in. <laughs> I... That actually, I, I I would love to see more things using uh, certificate infrastructure and key managed keys as a component for how this stuff should be built. We're not, I haven't seen good distributed key management. So along the lines of terms of identity, you have a Spiffy, which does a good job of that. Okay. But on the 
the non-Kubernetes workload side, you get back into a difficult scenario, more so for on-prem than public cloud, of how do I actually acquire my identity in a way that's cryptographically verified um, to actually request that identity and verify that, yes, I am who I say I am via some sort of system attestation. <laughs> now you're sounding like we should throw some uh, distributed ledger into this. <laughs> well, only if, uh, only if the, the two sides don't, don't trust each other. Right, right. No, and the, the, the nice thing about, about actually everybody in, the, in what we're describing, this is a trust environment. You should be able to know everything. You have to know everything in your system to make these, these calls valid. Uh, yeah, as long as there, there is one trusted authentication system or or or, or authorization as well, yeah. or, or identity, I, I guess you could call it. It doesn't even need to be authentication. Um, then, then you don't need a ledger because you, you can trust a single source of truth. Right. Well, that's the nice thing about having you know certificates or something signing your infrastructure would be, you'd be able to say, you know, you have somebody you trust in the middle of it all, and then they would have a shared uh, signing certificate between them for that that transaction. Yeah. Um, uh, but we are so unprepared, even for simple rotate certificate rotation in a Kubernetes cluster, let alone um, API um, consumer, right? If you were consuming, um, an interconnect between two systems would be wonderful to create a, a dedicated uh, cert for that transaction. Yeah, it's super hard. It's it's not that hard. You just have to automate. Yeah. Well, I I am hopefully optimistic that it will get better. Um, I I think that the main problem that we have right now is legacy baggage. We oh. we. We have okay. so so much so much infrastructure, so many systems, so 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 many what is considered best practices that that don't take these new systems in, into consideration. That we are struggling to catch up uh, and to uh, to rewrite the. But 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 really shouldn't be called best practices. Should be recommended practices. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 we have a, a knowledge adoption problem as well. Like it again, it, this comes back down to like that. There's so many interconnected systems that understanding all of them it takes time. And, and unless you are neck deep in, in it, it, it's you. It, it it becomes daunting as an as, as an observer. Um, yeah. So this brings me to another thought that I'm having is that perhaps it is time to to bring not necessarily Kubernetes, but definitely distributed systems into the CS curriculum at a much earlier stage <laughs> than, than it's currently being looked at. Like right now, when you look at this, this three of the systems, that is typically a grad school level uh, course. 
And I think it, it, it should be an undergraduate level. Um, at, at least the introduction to it should, should, should start at the undergraduate level. Hmm. Like, the, like the we, interesting we, we, thing is that we could actually build, nowadays it would be it's possible and not even expensive to build a real distributed system for people to get some experience, hands-on experience. But that's, yeah. I think, the missing piece, right, is that it, this, a lot of this is experiential. Like yeah. we're working on systems and getting experience where we can watch the, the perturbations or the interconnections go. Um, but it's, you know, it's very hard to do that in theory. It's really impossible. Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, this is right. This whole conversation started out of Martez's frustrations and trying to figure out what, where things are connected. We didn't actually talk about the specifics, but I mean, it's the, the, the core challenge of trying to, to essentially play connect the dots. And, and to, to the point that Klaus made was the, the challenge is the fact that you have to have people that are going really deep. But you're also going to have to somehow connect those people across the, the different disciplines or domains within the, the organization. And that still that proves to be a challenge of how I can help transfer that knowledge about these group of systems that I know. And then we share that information about group of systems that you know, because and oftentimes it's a different, just pure discipline of technical background. What, what you just described to me is the, the actual thing we should be talking about with infrastructure is code <laughs> instead of the thing we do talk with the industry. We talk about with infrastructure is code because that's, Ultimately, what we should be doing is figuring out how that people can leverage somebody else's domain expertise as a as a reusable component, rather than having to learn learn the domain expertise or think they can learn the domain expertise and just fall down on the Dunning Kruger effect. I, I think it should be a little bit of both. Um, that I, I think right now. Uh, I would personally lean more towards um, making domain expertise more easily obtainable or, or, or learnable, uh, just because that there is uh, there's a scarcity uh, of experts. Like and and I know it's working yeah. out great for me because I'm a, dom a, a, a domain <laughs> expert uh, uh, and I am in demand, so I I I have at least for now absolute job security. But on the on the flip side, it means that uh, it means that I become a bottleneck because I'm the only domain expert uh, in in many cases, like especially like you or like with the past decade I, I i worked at several startups so that the, there was no room for another domain expert mm -hmm. um so so yeah uh, like it like we need to figure out how how to how to produce more experts and it i think it's absolutely fine for the domain to be smaller but we need more experts <laughs> yes, we do. Guaranteed. 
All right. On that note, I think that's the right the right ending comment to go out with. Um, I pushed down the event and orchestration uh, topic to the fifteenth. We are not meeting next week. I am out. I'm just gonna just gonna have a skip. I'm gonna try and find this up. All right, everybody. This was this was interesting. Thank Martis. Thank you for bringing um, an interesting topic. I, I wish mm -hmm. I had easier answers. <laughs> uh, I think we're almost at the point of a lot of these things, Brett, no easy answers. <laughs> no, but but I think that there are subtle things that we can be doing that mm -hmm. um, that that do like they're they're this, they're simple design choices that we can do that improve outcomes. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think that this is unobtainable. I think it's it's education. To Gloss's point, I think it's it's understanding and education more than it is um, architectural feats. Cool. All right, everybody, I'm going. Thanks, All right, take care. Wow, what a great conversation! Uh, this is one of those impromptu. This is on my mind, and I need to figure it out type of questions that we have with COP2030 all the time, and you can be part of. Please join us at the2030.cloud. Uh, log in, come in, bring your topics, your thoughts, your ideas. We love to have wide open discussions like this, and you can be part of them. I'll see you there, and thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.